In early 2020, Australians faced a catastrophe like never before. Well, there's no doubt Australians don't have a culture of mask wearing. So it was phenomenal to be in a circumstance where masks were quite literally flying off the shelf and we were considering not just what the most appropriate mask was, but whether we had availability and how on earth we were going to get enough of them. To help, nearly 100,000 N95 masks were loaded onto a Qantas plane in Los Angeles and were headed towards us because large parts of Australia were choked from heavy smoke. Australians were experiencing the worst bushfires in memory. Kilometres of fire just coming towards you and you're thinking, how are we ever going to stop that? Uh, You could hear it, just a roar coming towards you. Despite the scale of this disaster and the tragedies, Australia is not and will never be overwhelmed. This scale of destruction was devastating and made international headlines. Almost 50 million hectares were scorched, killing people, destroying homes and uprooting livelihoods. But what we didn't know at the time was that there was an even bigger inferno on the horizon. COVID-19. Masks would become part of what we now call our new normal. This is How Science Matters, a Burnett Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers. You'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with a pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. I don't know that I thought it would be as 24-7 as it was, but that moment in early March when there was an open discussion about should Australia let the virus circulate as it happened in other places, I couldn't tell you how serious a discussion that was. It was just enough to say to me, for a while, I needed to do nothing else. That's Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnett Institute, a microbiologist and malaria researcher and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health today. Brendan will be my co-host throughout the series. So, how did COVID-19 begin for him? That was a Sunday. I worked all day on the Sunday on that message of quite literally writing with colleagues to the Prime Minister, go hard, go early message. So that means barbecues of lots of friends or even family, extended family coming together to celebrate one-year-old birthday parties and all these sorts of things. We can't do those things now. That was the early days. Now, news reports and social media are flooded with stories about the pandemic, from COVID clusters to vaccine hesitancy and the voices of those traumatised from its impact. For most of us, it's been an exhausting time of uncertainty and anxiety. But what's it like for someone who solves problems like this and provides advice to governments? It was easily the toughest yeah, for me in that respect, especially that first 
four to six months where I was so worried about the direction that the country and the world would take. Disease can seem abstract to a lot of people. To me, it's very real. You can actually get it. Your parents can get it. Your friends can get it. Yeah. And if they get it, they're going to be on oxygen and you're going to be wondering where they're going to live. That's very real to me. You know, we're here a year later-ish and I don't think I can imagine a time that COVID wasn't around. It's been that intense a year, so transformational for every person in the world, but especially for me who's lived and breathed pandemics and infectious disease for my whole working life. And I can't even remember a time before it, to be frank, I thought we would have this solved by now as a world. Why were you so positive that would happen? Well, we've done it before. We've had a few pandemic scares before, related virus to this one, SARS, of course, 15 to 20 years ago. There have been some other scares, MERS and Zika virus and Nipah virus in Malaysia, Hendra virus here in Australia. We've had uh, examples of how the world's snuffed those out on and off with Ebola in West Africa. So I expected that. And then as things got going, it looked doable. China did it, for example. And I guess I thought with wishful thinking that we would all respond in that way. Alas, it didn't happen. People are quite cynical about China and how they did it. How did they do it? Well, they didn't know a lot at the time. Of course, we know a lot more now. But the first and most important thing they did is have the right attitude, that the best way to live is with no COVID. And if every country, especially every country with resources, had had that attitude, regardless of the technique, it would have happened. It doesn't, as we've learned, really relate to how much money you have, what resources are there. If you've had the attitude that the best way to live with COVID is without it, by and large, it's happened. Is one of the successes of some countries about their cohesiveness of their populations and their thinking? I don't think it relates to the different ways in which societies are governed or their cultures. I think the most important element is leadership and what flowed from that. The United States and the UK have been such drivers of the epidemic. Ironically, prior to COVID, were ranked one and two in the Global Health Security Index, the official league table of your capacity to respond to a pandemic. So they should have been the best and they ended up being close enough to the worst. And I know with different challenges, we're an island and different opportunities, but you know we've managed to do it with that very similar culture to the UK and the US. They've got a lot to answer for. In terms of leadership, if we go back to the first rumblings of a threat of pandemic in that probably January 2020 period. Australia, particularly Victoria and New South Wales, were being ravaged by bushfire. Around that time, no doubt, news was coming through to both the Prime Minister and also, to a certain extent, the Victorian Premier about a threat that was coming in from overseas. It was a brave move to close the border less than two months later when Australia was hurting from the effects of bushfires. How do you assess the leadership there? I remember where I was down at Lawn, a coastal town in Victoria, for a very important malaria conference, but we were all talking about it. But that wasn't the 
hit me between the eyes moment. I think what evolved after Australia made a tough decision with closing its borders, at least to China, was that the recognition that other countries, and especially two great global health leaders in the US and the UK, took a different path. And there was open discussion, especially in the UK, about this idea that maybe we should let the virus go through a community in different ways, shapes or form that was called herd immunity via natural infection, not by vaccination. And Sweden as well. Yeah, it was They very much about, let it run. They did indeed. And that was a big topic of discussion. And we in Australia were wrestling with what do we do? Here are these global health leaders quite naturally were looking to see what they did. And that's when at one stage there was a press conference of some sort where the Prime Minister talked about it, not in any way that said Australia was about to do it. But the fact that it was even a discussion point, that was the moment I went into panic mode and really I've been 24-7 on COVID ever since that day. You certainly have. I read somewhere when at the height of COVID, Greg Hunt was getting anything up to a 1,000 messages on his phone alone and not able to cope with it. When did it really ramp up for you? Because you were very vocal very early. You pushed hard to make sure that Australia understood the need to consider closing their borders or at least go hard. You talked about go hard, go fast. And when did that change for you that all of a sudden you realised this was going to be a 24-7 life? I don't know that I thought it would be as 24-7 as it was, but that moment in early March when there was an open discussion about should Australia let the virus circulate as it happened in other places. I couldn't tell you how serious a discussion that was. It was just enough to say to me, for a while, I needed to do nothing else. I worked all day on the Sunday on that message of quite literally writing with colleagues to the Prime Minister, go hard, go early message. It's actually relatively straight pandemic practice. You don't react proportionally. You act disproportionately, much stronger than the amount of infection suggests you should. That's go hard, go early, with the payoff being that you don't have the infection later on. That means pretty harsh measures. It means shutting borders. It means locking down and so on and so forth. And that was what that very first message was to firstly say the best thing for Australia is to live without the virus. It was the first of a number of major public health messages that I've tried to promote in the last year and a half with colleagues here and colleagues throughout Australia. As for credit, I do credit our leadership, our Prime Minister and our Territory and State leaders, because on their watch, and you could go through all the issues of saying, oh, they didn't do this or they did that, but on their watch, they've delivered what is at least the equal of the best outcome in the world, and they deserve credit for that. It became a bit of a catchphrase of leadership, trust the science, we're listening to the experts. I don't think that used to be in their rhetoric. Unfortunately, a lot of countries that have failed use the same mantra. So I'm not sure that just our leaders saying it means a great deal. But in the case of Australia, the chief medical officer was really listened to by the health minister. And the health minister was really listened to by the prime minister. So yes, the science has been phenomenally put into the spotlight in this country. And it's science that was real time. And it was also science that was... 20 and 30 years in the making, which is a story that perhaps hasn't been told well. The reason we can 
diagnose the fact that it's a coronavirus within days is because we know a lot about coronavirus because that research has been funded over a very long period of time. The reason we knew how to start to make a vaccine from that first day was because those vaccine technology platforms, including for coronavirus, but also for other things, have been up and running and being developed literally for three decades. So science is very important in real time and very important in history. And so to have the leaders in this country quite genuinely listening to it was pretty satisfying. I've had the privilege of working alongside Brendan for a few years now, and I'm often amazed by his extraordinary brain. He's a visionary thinker who couldn't switch off in the middle of a COVID pandemic, even if he wanted to. So how hard is it to live inside that head? My brain is much more simple than you portray, Tracy. So that side of being visionary isn't one I'd concur with. The first thing to say is that the work of the Burnett, where I am now, that I've always been involved in as a scientist, has involved life and death issues intersecting with poverty and neglect. So that's been my 30-year work history stressing a lot about how those things can come together for answers for those communities that are home to me. They're not just abstract. So that side of it is something I've had to learn to live with and how it vacillates between being so incredibly depressing and the opportunity so great. That was normal life. Along comes COVID and a couple of things happen. First is it's right here in our own community. The reality is there for us. Um, We're obviously close to the healthcare sector. I'm not a medical doctor. My partner, Michelle, is a medical doctor. And the people most likely to get infected in a pandemic are healthcare workers because they're closest to the patients that come in. And so it's very real and tangible. And then the second thing is the communities that we focus on in our normal daily life, especially here at the Burnett, that happens to be people who are otherwise poor or marginalised or vulnerable, people in the region and throughout the world in those conditions, are far more threatened. We know it very well. They're far more threatened than us because you only need a slight upset to a health system that exists in a fragile setting and everything collapses. More women die in childbirth. Vaccination programs for other things don't progress. Malaria, TB, HIV, normal interventions don't happen or don't happen at the same rate. To me, I viscerally live that. And so it's enormously anxiety producing to to have a pandemic and see that playing out. So I do go into a panic mode. But for me, that's channeled into nonstop work. I don't know if it ever makes a difference, but I can control it if I leave no stone unturned, as I see it, in doing all I can. Living with a healthcare worker who's in a hospital setting as well, I mean, is there jumbo containers of hand sanitizer and things at your house? Is the protocols at the front door? Did you make a sleep in the shed like I've heard of some poor doctors have done? What were the fears if she came in the door? I think our purchasing of hand sanitizer was, you know, a single Epic. household that was responsible for the shortage that Australia <laughs> faced soon after. We did all of that. As early as February before Australia announced border closure, we had already bought up a couple of weeks' supply of food. What did you buy? 
That's a good what, question. What, what was on the list? The, the biggest things, of course, were essential things for our little kids. Yes. Three-year-old twins and making sure we had all of the essentials for them. Tins of lots of stuff and stuff you'd have in the bunker. We certainly realised that society could shut down for a while and it pretty much did. But, of course, the supermarket stayed open. We didn't bulk buy toilet paper, which is probably a mistake. Everyone else so did to that. Do and Panadol. If you ever need any Panadol, I'm now looking at the exp- <laughs> expiry dates on the ones I've still got in the shed. The race to find a vaccine began, well, much like a sporting race around the world. One of the contributing factors to the pace of the breakthrough of not just one effective vaccine, but several with science's collaborative approach. Collaboration has always been a strength of science, but to discover a vaccine this fast even took Brendan by surprise. I could not have predicted that vaccine development would be anything like this successful in that time frame. To have eight or nine strong candidates now, many more on the way, over a million people, over a billion people, in fact, immunised already, not far over a year since the pandemic, is just phenomenal. It's unheard of. Vaccines normally take a decade or two to develop. So phenomenal speed, yes, built on collaboration, built on money. The reason for speed is that the amount of money spent on it didn't matter to a large extent, and that enabled a lot of clinical trials to happen that normally take a long time to happen much faster. They are this brilliant tool that we've been very fortunate to have being produced in large amounts. But if we're myopically focused on them, we will fail. And we're seeing at the moment countries with huge epidemics in the world with, as a result of letting the virus go, mutant forms of the virus that are very different to the original form, threatening us for a number of reasons. And one of the things they threaten is the vaccine program. If we didn't just see everything through the vaccine lens... I think we would have kept the numbers down without vaccines and ironically preserved the potential to use the vaccine. So they really have been this double-edged, seen as a silver bullet, which is in the end going to cost us a bit before we regroup and hopefully use them wisely. You talk about the silver bullet. Some people think, well, I'll get vaccinated once or have the two jabs and that'll solve that. There's fatigue in the community, not just in Australia but globally, of even addressing the impact of COVID, how do we convince people and even talk to people about what's ahead? It's almost like people aren't willing to even go there. And isn't that so understandable? It's such a difficult discussion to have. Unfortunately, the keep the virus low in the world possibility has gone. And when that decision was made starting in the number 10 Downing Street and in the White House and in Brazil, for example, then what that consigned us to was years more of this problem. That's what those decisions consigned us to. And so for Australians in this relatively COVID-free world, it's incredibly hard to conceive of us having to worry about this for 12 months or 24 months or beyond. But unfortunately, that's the reality. The original Wuhan strain of the virus didn't actually transmit that well. The worst variants at the moment transmits sort of three times faster than that. 
And then, as also expected with Darwinian evolution, the viruses will evolve to avoid the immunity, either the natural immunity or the vaccine-induced immunity. And so we are still learning about what that's going to mean, what level of vaccination in our community will be enough to cope with these different viruses. Will it ever be? And do we need new vaccines that represent the variants? And can we keep up with that because the variants of today are not the variants of tomorrow? So we now have this ongoing learning that we have to undertake and unfortunately live with a very real threat of COVID for years, as depressing and hard to grasp as that is. We have to find a way to do that in Australia and throughout the world. People are fatigued, so therefore they're almost willing to allow some level of COVID infection to return to Australia and that we just have to live with it. Others are saying no. I think it was 70% of the population in a random poll were asked, did they want to open the borders? And they said, not if it means COVID coming back in. How is that going to be addressed by leadership moving forward? When does it become too much? I think in Australia, we've come to value the vast majority of Australians deeply value what being COVID zero brings. That means no COVID in the community or the occasional leak from hotel quarantine and so on that's squashed. This is not happening almost anywhere else in the world. But in most places, they have to live with COVID, sometimes a little bit of COVID, sometimes a lot of COVID. And that matters, of course, for human suffering. But actually living with a little bit of COVID is dramatically different to living with no COVID. Living on the tender hooks of knowing that at any moment COVID might break out in your suburb or in your community. And of course, mostly it does. It's a pretty binary thing. There's no method to somehow keep COVID in this suppressed state without lots of public health action, of course. So Australians have come to really appreciate this incredibly precious thing that first we stumbled upon, which is this community elimination, and then deliberately did especially through Victoria's second wave in a way that I don't think has happened anywhere else in the world. What I think we'd need to get through to Australians and particularly to our leaders, it's going to take their leadership, is that all things being as they are, COVID zero is the best way to live. It's a much better way to live than some apocryphal, it's okay, we're exhausted, we want to open our borders a little bit and a little bit of COVID comes in. That will be a much worse lifestyle than saying we really value COVID zero. Our aspiration is to remain that for the indefinite future until we know much more about variants and vaccination rates and so on. But we're going to be really ambitious and clever about letting people in and out and not the virus in and out. I think Australians think it's precious. We need to reinforce that, but find really clever ways to have borders more and more open. Take me back to the dark days of the lockdowns in Melbourne and what it was like to be at the forefront of not only some of the media coverage to try and explain some of the things that needed to happen. What we need to do is to stop community transmission getting to high levels before we have the tools to know where all those infections are. And at the moment, we don't have the tools. We will have them in a matter of weeks to a much better degree to what we have now. We've got to buy ourselves that time. But also you would have no doubt 
felt the pressure among family, among friends. Was there a time where you wanted to keep it a little bit quiet that you were a scientist or that you led the institute and the, the push that we did through research? What a bizarre time that was. It was a time that took a toll. Uh, of course, I worked at home. I have young kids as well as older kids. This, you got to bond with them 24-7, I did, eh? What indeed. a bonus. <laughs> it's a, what a crazy time that was. And my partner suffered a lot too and works also on COVID. So together we somehow struggled through. I think there'll be a bit of our own version of PTSD to deal with someday. But the prize was a pretty big one. You know, at one stage, Victoria had 20,000 people infected. Still a big outbreak, but at that point you're thinking, well, are we at the point of no return? And the decision was taken to try and defeat it, and the decision was taken to finish it off. And that was the single most important decision next to closing the borders, was the decision to finish it off in Victoria. I think the nation would still be living with COVID if that call wasn't made. And it was against enormous pressure. I was familiar enough with transmission to say that it was much more possible than perhaps what people thought. One of the quirks of COVID is that most people who have it don't transmit it to anybody. And some people transmit it to a lot of people. And really it was that quirk that meant it was achievable. So, yeah, that was very heady days. And congratulations to all of those who made the hard calls here in Victoria and all that support that was received from around the country. Big decision to eliminate it. Have you ever asked yourself why COVID-19 was the virus that became a pandemic? I can remember first hearing about it in the news, like we did with SARS and MERS, and thinking to myself, I hope this doesn't take off. So how did this virus manage to evade a lot of the preventions we threw at it? The first thing is to say it's a garden variety zoonosis. So zoonosis is a fancy word for a virus that is not normally in humans, it's in animals, and for some reason or another, jumps across into humans. Now, it's not normal, actually, for animal viruses to do that. Most species out there, all mammalian species, all reptilian species, every species of animal has its own group of viruses, and those group of viruses stick to that species. But occasionally when one jumps across into another species and can for whatever reason, start to transmit. The big problem is that no one has any immunity to it. It's never been seen in every single person. So we're all 100% susceptible in a way that we're not to infections that are normally in us. So that's the first thing. It was a standard pandemic. But what made it so much worse? The thing about COVID is that it's an in-between virus. It's Goldilocks virus. If it had been much worse, it would have most likely been crushed. You can have worse viruses. Ebola-like hemorrhagic fevers that kill a large percentage of the people they infect. I don't think we would have had the debates about whether to shut it down completely or let it run through the community if it was a little bit worse. On the other hand, it is much worse than the flu and different to the flu. 
literally 10 times worse for severe disease at all age groups than influenza, and influenza is already a terrible disease. So this Goldilocks nature of it, not too hot, not too cold, if I'm not mixing my stories, is what led to this being such a problem. Worse would have probably been better and led to it being eliminated by now. This one transmitted readily enough, caused enough harm, but not enough to convince every government that it needed to be shut down. Is that because they felt that you could live with it? There was a way of containing it in some way or that it was livable? Yeah. Yeah, I think they genuinely thought that and they probably were relatively poorly advised to some degree as well by people who were not expert in pandemics and infectious diseases but influenced by business leaders and so on. I wasn't in the rooms, of course, when these decisions were made, but they were pretty dumb decisions. They were paying a huge price. They were dumb then and they're dumb now. But you can see kind of where it came from. Is this terrible? Is it bad enough? What about the economy? It would cost so much to shut this down, which of course it does. But what they weren't seeing was pretty obviously how much it costs if it's left to run. That's the unfortunate history of COVID-19. So yes, it was in the sweet spot of infections. To most of us, COVID-19 is an invisible enemy because it's only scientists that can see the spiky ball shape of the virus in a lab. But as we've all discovered, the more you learn about COVID-19, the more visible it becomes. When you're a microbiologist like I am, literally the term microbiologist means something you can only see under a microscope. But I do see it. I see it in this room now that we're in. I see the bugs on our hands, on the couch that I'm looking at. I know that they're there. So it is very visceral, the organisms that are in us, good ones and bad ones. We've got more bacteria in us than we have human cells at the moment. So it's not like I see it as a good and evil thing, but I do see it, and so do healthcare professionals. And so they are especially brave because they know exactly what they're getting themselves in for. And yet they rock up with COVID patients being brought into them knowing that this could be their day. But all of that pales into, not so much insignificant, but pales into comparison to what healthcare workers are facing in countries with raging epidemics. You know, reports of 50 doctors dying in a single day in India. Can you imagine it was most likely hundreds if not thousands of healthcare workers more broadly. So I'm not emphasising doctors, it's just a stat. As a marker of a tragedy and also as a tragedy in and of itself, the very people you need to help pull you out of the problem. It's just extraordinarily tragic. The loss for the world, which we can't really calculate accurately now, is already immense. And the impact is going to be way beyond COVID. What we worry about in the health world and in the health science world, is the non-COVID impact of COVID more than we worry about COVID itself, even though we stress like crazy about COVID itself. But it's that big. And losing a lot of healthcare professionals around the world is one of those reasons. Will it ever be a memory or is it going to stay with us annually like the flu? My suspicion is that we might reach a stage where we want to get rid of COVID altogether. Now, that's a big statement. Most people will say the cat's out of the bag, we've got to live with COVID forever, and there's every chance that that's true. We may not, though. The world's on a pathway to eliminate polio. It's already eliminated smallpox, or eradicated smallpox. That means there's absolutely none in any place in the world. Eliminate means 
it's gone from particular regions of the world, and that's the case with polio. There's no polio in Australia. There's no measles in many countries either, and that's on a pathway to global eradication. But I do worry about what I've seen with the variants of concern, their increased transmissibility and their capacity to immune avoidance and their virulence. They really are nasty infections that uh, we might choose to get rid of it altogether. Science does have the flaw at the moment. The scientists are like rock stars, really. Anthony Fauci is probably the biggest rock star of the world. We would never have known his name, a lot of us that weren't directly connected with science. We've named this podcast series How Science Matters. From a scientist's point of view, what does matter next? What hope do you have for the world and in solving not only COVID, but not worrying about the next pandemic around the corner, which I know you're preparing for already? Science does matter. It's, it's why we're not in the dark ages. It's why we can deal with it. It's why we will deal with COVID. We just know so much. And science is across the board. It's technical, as people understand, develop a vaccine, develop a drug, develop a diagnostic. But it's community, it's modelling, it's understanding disease transmission and so on. Science matters an awful lot. It's the reason why Australia is eliminated and why the world will end up dealing with this. The second big lesson is that not only does science matter, the products of science have to be available to everybody. And gee, we've learnt that in COVID. It's not just a nice feel-good thing to say healthcare needs to be equitable. If it's not, you pay a big price. Even here in Melbourne, it was people with insecure work, people in housing commissions, people who were working multiple jobs because they couldn't afford to do otherwise under the radar that were particularly susceptible, making the whole community susceptible. Regionally, in places like Papua New Guinea and Timor-Leste and Solomon Islands and so on, poverty is a major driver. And that's terrible for them, but it also helps the epidemic get a foothold in the region and then threatens everybody. So we've learned, and hopefully the world is still learning more and more, that not only science, but everybody having access to science really matters. And look, I think the final and most positive lesson is that things that we never thought remotely were possible are possible. The development of vaccine in a year is the big one. So many vaccines and so many that work well, fully developed into people and making a big difference in the world is just literally 10 times faster than you could have imagined. There are other just never thought possible lessons. Expenditure is one. What it's okay to spend to crush a health problem is a big mindset change that it is worth it for the economy, it's worth it for our society to invest big in dealing with health issues. Maybe that's going to come together in dealing with the biggest challenge of all, and that's the rapid global warming and its effects that we tend to think of in terms of 2050 timeframes and so on for when we might reach carbon zero and how we might head off two-degree warming of the planet. COVID tells us that we don't need to be constrained by that sort of conversation. Be more ambitious. It can be achieved. And to a reasonable degree, as terrible as it is, COVID is a dress rehearsal for something much bigger, which is the problem we face of the more or less irreversible global warming and its effects. And does anything keep you up at night other than the young children? I wouldn't say I literally don't sleep, but I do stress about the growing pandemic in the world at the moment. I find the juxtaposition of our relative freedom and the 
degree of crisis that I find hard to explain. It's all throughout the world, the degree of suffering and stress and worry as you, people lose their parents and their brothers and their sisters is really distressing to me. And I find myself lying awake thinking, well, what more can I do? What more can I do to help influence our government, influence governments in the region, influence scientists, keep our eye on the ball? We have missed a trick. The globe's missed a trick. We've seen in the US, and I don't mean to be at all political, but the change of the president made a very big difference. That was an attitudinal difference, not just the arrival of the vaccines. We need a global attitude change like that and things will turn around. So that's what I stress about. What can I do in my little corner of the world to influence that? In Australia, every person can ask what can they do. The first thing they can do is get vaccinated. Stop equivocating. Get vaccinated. Do it for yourself. Do it for your community. Do it for your parents. Do it for people you love and care about. Don't wait for a minute to get vaccinated. Be pro-science. Back those who are working in this space. After a year like no other, Brendan Crabb continues to focus 24-7 on the pandemic, and he's determined to see Australia through to a COVID-safe reality. How Science Matters was produced by Written and Recorded. This is a Burnett Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge. So join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us remind everyone how science matters. If you like this episode, please keep an eye out for the next instalment, Are Vaccines the Silver Bullet? To hear more, search for How Science Matters on the Bernard Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this episode with two friends or even more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. See you next time. This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.